ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Platt to the podcast to talk about the Pushkin Jubilee of 1937 and what it meant for Stalinist culture, the canonization of Pushkin, how he was represented as a living statue that sought the collapsed temporality, and what the Jubilee says about the Great Terror. We even talk about how the 1937 Jubilee dealt with Pushkin's racial ambiguity. John Platt is an assistant professor in the Slavic Languages and Literature Department at the University of Pittsburgh, where he specializes in Pushkin, literary theory, Soviet culture, and Russian contemporary art and poetry. He recently published Greetings Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics and the Russian National Bard. Here's John Platt. So your book, Greetings Pushkin, is a detailed examination of the Pushkin centennial of 1937. Why don't we start our discussion by having you talk generally about the place of Pushkin in Russian and Soviet culture. As they put it in the uh, decree that announced the um, plans for this uh, centennial in 1937, Pushkin is the, uh, the founder of modern Russian literature and the creator of the Russian literary language, the modern Russian literary language. So Pushkin is the, the equivalent of Shakespeare, Dante, Cervantes, uh, Goethe, Schiller, whatever, uh, in the Russian context. But it has a very um, serious meaning uh, in Russia that the Soviet culture was was appropriating at this time. Basically, that he is, you know, the word giver, and you know, and this was a big deal for um, for the Soviet Union, of course, because the idea was they were basically now giving those words to everyone, not just to this uh, very small group of educated people that had been in Russia in the in the nineteenth century, with people, who, small group of literate people, right? Because you'd had these massive literacy drives already in the 1920s, and this was the culmination of that work of bringing a lot of people, workers, peasants, and so on, into the fold of, of some kind of high culture, right? It was an educational project. So, and just, you know, it's a classic use of a, of a national poet, that the national poet's purpose is to bring people together around this symbol of culture, but also create a canon of texts that people read in school, What's interesting about Pushkin, though, is that, is that Russia is, has always had a kind of weak national project. It's always been in some kind of conflict or meeting some kind of obstacle from the, the side of the, the imperial nature of Russia. So Pushkin's status as national poet never really confirmed. And in, in, to a large extent, you can say that 1937 was when he really achieved the status uh, that he has today. So the centennial of his birth in 1899, there wasn't there an effort to also have a jubilee of sort? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's the first attempt was in 1880, actually. And there's a really good book on that event by Marcus Levitt. But the idea there, what Levitt says that's, that's uh, I think, pretty accurate, is that it was like that event was an, a, kind of an attempt by intelligentsia figures to create this institution, but it wasn't embraced by, say, the, by, by the state or by the people to a, to a sufficient degree. And then you have this amazing moment where the, the most uh, sort of significant thing that happens at that event, where they're unveiling the statue to Pushkin that's in Moscow on Pushkin Square. Dostoevsky gives this speech, where, which is just filled with all sorts of crazy kind of messianic rhetoric about the, the future of Russia and has this kind of proto-fascist intonation to it in certain places, ultimately saying that Pushkin is like in the future, 
right? This sort of Russia has this mission, uh, which is very, which is completely the opposite of what your normal sort of national poet kind of structure is, where this is our past, this is our origin, this is where we come from, this is what you know makes us one as we go forward together in time. And then in 1899, that was when the Romanovs tried to uh, join the bandwagon a bit finally. And some other, you have some conservative people. Uh, uh, there was this guy, Suvoren, this big uh, newspaper editor who, who put a lot of effort into that jubilee. But intellectuals actually didn't participate that time because they found it all very kitschy and kind of in bad taste and attacking it. I mean, there were people already in 1880 who were upset about the idea of having a monument to Pushkin. That Pushkin is, of course, you know, greater than any monument, that he transcends this bourgeois institution of, of, a, of a monumental national poet. But uh, yeah, so in 1899, most of this sort of modernist culture, the symbolists and so on, sat it out. There were a lot of articles, like the World of Art Journal, uh, talking about how disgusting it all is. And so basically, it's not until, I mean, the way I talk about it is that you have this kind of resistance to the national bard cult from intellectuals in the modernist period, along with the state trying to, and it's all part of this Roanoke sort of half-assed attempt, what they call official nationalism, where they're kind of trying to produce nationalism from top down, but without great intellectual support. Totally not the way you're supposed to do it, your 19th century national awakening. So basically, by the time you get to 30s, the, the intellectuals have been brought on board in one way or another. You have, you know, a new generation, obviously, and the, the ones who were resisting back in the, or the sort of the modernists who would have resisted before, been brought around in one way or another, uh, or have left. And of course, now you finally have a people who can read, <laughs> which is probably the most important part that you have, and you have universal education and you have, because, you know, to a large extent, the 37, uh, 1937 Jubilee is, is uh, a pedagogical project. Biggest audience for it is in the schools, as children. And one of the things I talk about in the book is actually how the way they taught literature changed in those years. And... And to this day, you know, in many ways, that sort of model of, of literature instruction is still uh, pretty intact. And so among that are things like, you know, celebrating Pushkin in, in school. So one of the things that I, I found interesting in your discussions of the generation of the planning of the Jubilee is that they borrowed the idea from the German celebration of Goethe in 1932, right? But it's interesting because you, you already brought up this issue of from Dostoevsky, where Dostoevsky is kind of projecting Pushkin into the future, whereas most celebrations, as you said, of national culture and the, these figures are, are looking at a great past. So the origins of the celebration from this from the Soviet planners, what were they trying to do? What was the mission beyond this pedagogical mission, the celebration of Pushkin? Were they trying to build a nation from him? Well, I mean, it's hard to say build a nation. They were definitely trying to participate in a project of building national culture, right? Of using, of creating a national culture, you know, uh, well, not creating it, but encouraging its, its sort of uh, dissemination, using it. I mean, it's a modernization project, ultimately, right? That you, you need a kind of horizontally distributed common cultural foundation if your population is going to be able to you know, move freely around and communicate with one another in a way that is not actually characteristic of, of uh, empires, uh, typically. Um, and so they were doing some of that a lot. You know, that was a lot of what the 1930s are about, the whole Friendship of the Peoples campaign. They were celebrating the national cultures of, of the other Soviet republics. The Pushkin Jubilee was, was followed, or was almost simultaneous with a big Gustaveli celebration going on in Georgia, but also in Moscow, right? 
Shevchenko and Ukraine had a, had a big jubilee. And, you know, they were doing this. So it was kind of like they were creating a canon. They're creating this, what I talk about as a kind of monumental core of value that will, that people can gather around and feel like a community, a homogenous community to a certain extent. And of course, this is something that's happening all over, right? So yeah, so in, it goes back to the 18th century, the first jubilee is a Shakespeare jubilee in 1794, I think. And there was, there were all sorts of events in the 19th century too. But in the 30s, there was this, maybe it's a more populist version of it, you could say, part of this general interwar effort to deal with the pressures of the depression and so on and, and, and bring these nations together. I mean, the Nazis had a huge Schiller celebration in 1934. So it was kind of happening all over. And a lot of what was going on, you know, in the Soviet Union is they, they want to participate in this, this kind of world of competition. It's, it's part of Stalin's socialism in one country thing. They want to be a world player. They want to say, we also have a, an awesome <laughs> literature, even if it's the literature of our of the pre-revolutionary regime in some sense. They're trying to expropriate that pre-revolutionary culture, the parts that they wanted at least, and and claim it as their own so that they could participate in this international competition over who's who's the great, you know, because what does it mean to be a great culture, right? It means that it means that you have some mo more modern imperial power, right? That you, people have to listen to you. You have a civilization that you can sort of uh, market and one that you're contributing to a world Exactly, culture. exactly. Which means that you have power. It means that you have sovereignty. Now, much of your analysis of the centennial concerns issues of time. And you already touched on this a bit with your comments on Dostoevsky. And in particular, the way Pushkin is represented as monumental, but also eschatological. What do you mean by these two terms, monumental and eschatological, and, and how did Pushkin figure in it? Well, I mean, the monumental one is the easiest one to understand, and, you know, I've talked a lot about all, all that already. I mean, basically, it's the model of a statue. People gather around this, this figure. The figure itself is transparently symbolic. When you look at a statue, you don't think it's actually Pushkin, right? You know it's a symbol. It collects a certain range of meanings, and those meanings are these pedagogical canon that makes you Russian or, or Soviet if you're, if you're a Russo-centric Soviet, if you're, if you're following that Russo-centric Soviet idea. The people gather around the monument and they are this like vitality and there's this weird kind of uh, interplay where they produces this assemblage or this hybrid structure where the people give their life to the monument. And so we get these metaphors like Pushkin lives on in our hearts or something, right? He lives on in our memory, right? Pushkin can never really die. Where of course we know he's dead. But we have life. Our culture lives forever. And that's part of the other part of the exchange is because Pushkin is permanent. Pushkin's sort of authority for his achievement can never be questioned. He confers this identity, this enduring identity over time to the people, right? So that's, that's pretty straightforward. And that's kind of the general model for national poet cults or the institution of national poet across European, modern European culture, right? It's an interesting phenomenon, actually, in that... You know, it starts with Shakespeare. You have this weird history where in many ways the Germans are the people who first start making Shakespeare into a national poet. It's a very, it's a very interesting uh, history if you go back to the 18th century and see where it all comes from. So Goethe is the first national poet who is recognized and in his own lifetime celebrated in this way, but also recognized abroad. And then you start going into Eastern Europe. You have all these national poets of Eastern European countries who are recognized at home, but not abroad, because basically they come a little bit late. They're all pretty much coming in the, in the age of Byron. Byron is already past this moment of this kind of national awakening period, uh, this sort of second generation romantic thing. And Pushkin is known as, as a member of world literature, except as specialist. But the same thing can be said of Mitskevich or, or Macha in, in, in the Czech Republic. 
But in any, in any case, that's, that's the kind of monumental side of things. The other side, I mean, I, I was talking about this a little bit before with Dostoevsky, right, and, and the modernists who rejected the attempts by the Romanovs to, to celebrate Pushkin, which is kind of, you know, it's, an, it's kind of an elitist, anti-bourgeois attitude. The fact that I call it eschatological is, is complicated and, and needs some explaining because it goes back to the discourse of modernity in some ways precedes what the era we know as modern, right? Because the word modern is a lot older than what we tend to call modernity. And if you think of a, an eschatological attitude, this anticipation of some future rupture in time, basically this idea that there is an other world, a temporality that is eternal, that you can perceive maybe portents of it in, in the present, that you can anticipate it, you can prognosticate. What is the temporal meaning of, of the modern, right? And what are the different, where does it come from? What are the different uh, articulations of it? In, in the context of the national poet, what I call this eschatological chronotope or eschatological attitude to time, is that Pushkin doesn't live on in our hearts, but he is alive <laughs> in some sense, right? And you can do this in different ways. You can say that sort of like, Pushkin, it's, you can have an iconoclastic thing, like never have a monument to Pushkin, smash all monuments to Pushkin. The, real, the true Pushkin is this living force, this essence that peers in Russian culture, in, in great moments of, of Russian, uh, Russian culture. You can say, like Dostoevsky, that Pushkin is in some way our mission that we have to accomplish. In the Soviet rhetoric, you would get things like Pushkin knew about the revolution. He prophesied our coming, right? <laughs> and other things like saying that Pushkin leaps over time to to join us to join the ranks of the builders of socialism that his own time didn't respect him they you know he died violently you know the czars didn't take care of him and so on he was persecuted but we go back and rescue him and pull him forward into our time and and you know you have poems where like stalin is kissing pushkin on the on red square and all sorts of things like that so basically that model of time suggests that there is a post-apocalyptic reality after the revolution when things have all been transfigured that now the classics of literature russian literature can be ours because everything is different now. History has changed, that we have, the revolution sort of purges these past of, of, of its darkness and brings it into the light. It's, a, it's much more biblical, the rhetoric sound, but, but it is, it is about, it, it, it seems to me about trying to collapse the past and the future into the present. So is it, this is, I mean, from other, other readings I, I've done on, on, say, socialist realism, I think Yevgeny Dubrenko is a good example. He speaks about this notion of time as the collapsing of past present and future into one eternal present. Is that what you see going on here in a similar way? Well, that is, you know, pretty much what I, what I call the eschatological chronotope. That it, it's kind of like, it's that the now expands to cover all time selectively, right? Anything that, that is good can, is now. But that, but the point of the book basically is that that is only half of the story. Because of course the, the usual, his, and it's, you know, the usual historiography of the Stalinist period is that actually that kind of attitude is on the wane in the 1930s and that we have all this this national culture stuff coming in that is a represent you know that, that reflects a return to something more bourgeois more kind of right uh, the great retreat typically typically modern right yeah the great retreat exactly and so basically what i'm trying to say is that the essence of stalin is this he does he goes left and right simultaneously and then slams the left and slams the right as well is that there's this weird kind of i mean it's not dialectical it's it, it really is double think uh, in the Orwellian sense, that they're doing both of these things simultaneously. And it becomes very strange because at times they find ways to do them. I mean, they're totally contradictory sort of attitudes, but at times they find ways to really blend them into a single thing, to like bizarre paradoxical structures. 
So like one of the, the, the sort of the guiding motif of the book is images of Pushkin as a living statue, right? So he's both this, this monumental, permanent, uh, enduring image, but he is also among us living and talking to us. Um, and so on. Right. Let's explore this a bit more with some with some examples. You have a very long discussion about how the Jubilee positioned Pushkin as a manifestation of the Russian nation, and you you are you are discussing and pushing back against this notion of a Russocentric turn that happens with the Great Retreat, with the conservatism that proliferates through Stalinist culture. But at the same time, this Pushkin is also within the context of an understanding of the progressive evolution of Soviet nationalities. So how does he function as these two things simultaneously in a way? This is basically the, you know, it's an argument that I, that I like, that, that some historians, I think Francine Hirsch is the one that I probably rely on most as, as a, someone who makes this argument about how this change in the nationalities policy should not be considered... A simply a retreat from the ultimate communist manifesto ideal of a world without nations, without, you know, a humanity that is united and where it's it, where diversity is not division, basically. You can have diversity, but it doesn't divide the toilers from one another. And that, in fact, the idea is that socialism in one country is itself, even though it, it is, of course, on the one hand, a nationalist, has this kind of national element to it. Um, and that within, you know, with this friendship of, of people's campaign, each republic is meant to cultivate its own national culture that then contributes to the union level. Uh, and of course, Russian Russian culture is first among equals. So it's the lingua franca that is meant to bring everyone together, which makes the whole thing look a little bit like a federal national version of a Russian empire. At the same time, there is, of course, this idea of a Marxist timeline already in the 20s. They're, they're always both creating nations and destroying them. A nation is not a permanent thing. I mean, you can say there will always be a Russia, but only in the sense that there will always be a Pushkin, there will always be a Lenin. That when we get to communism, these great representatives of Russian history will be there, but everyone will understand them exactly the same. And this is a very different thing from the typical way that national culture is is articulated in the modern period, in, in, in modernity, because classically the idea of, a say, a national poet like Shakespeare is universal, right? Any culture should read Shakespeare. And of course, you get imperialist articulations of this where, like, uh, I think Benedict Anderson quotes some some racist saying that, like, one volume of Shakespeare is worth an entire library of, of Indian literature or something like that, right? But at the same time, so it's universal and everyone should read it, but at the same time, only we really get it. So you get this classic modern empire logic where only the core gets the real juice of the, of the national literature, but the, the periphery, the empire has to sort of, is supposed to enjoy this weird translated common denominator version. In the, in the Soviet project, Russian culture is meant to get to a place where it is, does not have that national core where you get weird articles during this, this period when, when Russia is becoming the first among equals, where it's all very defensive. They're saying, like, we can be Russians again. I know that Russians were very bad, and they did a lot of horrible things to the other people uh, in the empire and in, in the Soviet Union. But now it's time to take that culture back and, and, and use it because we need, we need it. And because it's the most socialist, the most modern. Of course, I'm sure there were tons of people who were, like, you know, rubbing their hands. I mean, there were. A lot of them called themselves national Bolsheviks and so on. There are a lot of people who liked Stalin because, uh, aha, he's secretly sneaking Russian culture back into the top. But a lot, there were a lot of other people who didn't see it that way, who really were looking at this turn as a, a movement towards a, a transnational world 
culture that would take the best of every place into this pantheon of greatness, whatever. So it looks like a retreat on the one hand, and in many, in some ways, you know, obviously there is a kind of turn to some kind of bourgeois element, but, but I, I, what I try to emphasize is that it's mixed with so much of this other stuff that you really can't look at it just that way. You have to accept the terms that they're using themselves to, to think about this as also looking forward. So how is, how is Pushkin employed in this way? Well, I mean, Pushkin is the, the symbol of this Russian culture that is for everyone. So the idea is that, first of all, it's the other republics should not be jealous, of course, because they all have their own jubilees. Second of all, the, although there, Pushkin, of course, has a special meaning to Russians, so we have to throw the Russians a bone, because a lot of this is also about giving these people something to, to cheer about. It's also, you know, you could say it's not that different from some of the things that Putin is doing uh, today, and maybe allowing certain rightist leanings to have some reflection in the in the state discourse without being indulged all the way. So you expropriate the past, you, you articulate a kind of continuity with the past, but it doesn't have to become this total onslaught of nationalist rhetoric, which would be, I mean, this is the other thing that the competition with the Nazis is extremely important in these years, right? The Nazis are proclaiming all this crazy stuff about this primordial German culture and so on. And the Soviet Union has to counter it with a brand of universalism that allows all cultures to have their own greatness or their own potential greatness through socialism eventually, but without losing the national specificity. And, and you know, the, the classic paradoxical formulation for this is uh, national in form and socialist in content. You promote these national events, you promote all the stuff that every bourgeois nation does, creating pedagogical canons and so on, deciding what your national folklore is, all these things. Uh, celebrating your national poet, but at the same time, you're meant to be dialectically from within transforming all that stuff with socialist content so that it, it looks forward to this place where that national culture will be part of some single human culture. So you already said that a big part of the Jubilee, the centennial to celebrate Pushkin, it is interesting because it's the centennial of his death. And maybe you can also comment on that in addition to well, why why the centennial of his death? Let me ask you that. It's, it's funny. It's it's one of the um, things you know. There's like a, there's some joke. I forget exactly how it goes, but it was like if Pushkin had been alive in the 20th century, he would have still died in in a year ending in 37. You know, so it's like it's so fitting that they're celebrating his death. But in their terms, it, it's fitting for a different reason. It's because it's a tragedy. Pushkin is a tragedy. Pushkin's death. He died at the hands of the perfidious evil czarist regime. He was killed by a foreigner from who this, uh, you know, Dantes, who was coming onto Russian soil <laughs> to to steal our our national poet. Pushkin was part of the failed, you know, has this association with the failed Decemberist uprising that that uh, uh, you know inaugurates the the liberation movement that is completed in in 1917. You know, it's Pushkin is a martyr to a revolutionary history that has to be redeemed now, a hundred years later. So the fact that it's the centennial of his death, I mean, in, so, in many ways, of course, it's a it's hundred years, it's coming up. Uh, the next round date is not till 19, 1949, when you have the sesquicentennial of his birth. So, and you, you want to do something big in the 30s with your national poet, but the, in terms of the discourse of the Jubilee, it, 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 was, it was very um, important that it was his death because it brought all this sort of sense of we're resurrecting Pushkin in our time. We love Pushkin when, when his own time didn't didn't treat him properly, you know? The other thing you, you talked about, and you already referenced this as well, is that the centennial allowed for the incorporation of Pushkin into the Soviet educational curriculum. So how did Soviet children learn and celebrate Pushkin in the late 1930s? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Pushkin was always there, but I mean, it's it's interesting because the um, the way that people tend to remember their Soviet education and the way Pushkin was was treated in the schools is that Pushkin is a revolutionary, basically. That the the Soviet schools did this crazy thing where they they just overemphasized Pushkin's political. For example, his earlier poems, which are more political, before the Decembrist uprising, for which he kind of has this right turn in some ways in his politics, and this is true, but. It's important to know that note that in the 30s, actually, they were trying to correct that. And in fact, the, the mainstream sort of Soviet Pushkin that you get is a lot less political than the one that you had, say, in the 20s. In the 20s, if you read Pushkin in school, it was only those kind of poems. And they were, and even, they were criticized on top of that, right? <laughs> As being liberal and not sufficiently radical and so on. And this is the other thing is that literature itself was very, had a very unstable, very sort of precarious position in the Soviet school curriculum uh, in in the first fifteen years or so of, of Soviet schooling, because you know history in general, it didn't emphasize the present enough. It was too difficult to sort of take this stuff, and they, there was too much anxiety about these things of being ideologically contaminated in some way, right? So if we if we give Pushkin to school kids, what's going to happen to them? They're going to get infected, and so it's, so you, so when you read it in these early textbooks, it's they're trying to provide little insert little antidotes and criticisms. That, I mean, they have this term critical assimilation of the of the of the past, right? That the past has to be purged. It's a very eschatological kind of idea. Anyway, the, throughout the 20s, you have this movement in, in pedagogical policy between sort of attempts at, at being more radical, more progressive, doing away with subjects altogether. In the, in the mid-20s, they had this thing called the complex method, where they would study, you know, all sorts of different things under the heading of nature and other things under the heading of labor. And they, they were trying to remake the school. To this day, you know, we use a lot of these, these uh, progressive techniques uh, that were popular everywhere. So, but that stuff was constantly failing. And, and there were, you know, I think uh, you wrote about the hooliganism uh, in the Komsomol, right? There's all these fears of this kind of degrading youth. And so they would, they would then swing back to the right and try to reintroduce grades and subjects and so on. And literature always uh, came in during those periods, right? So literature was always emphasized. You'd only have a chronological study of Russian literature during the, the moments of retreat, basically, as, as it's called. So again, what I'm kind of saying is that the Jubilee takes that oscillation and finally finds a way to have literature that is not a, to study literature in the schools without it be feeling like a retreat. So it's still a retreat, of course, uh, in the sense that it, it is moving towards this bourgeois monumentalist kind of uh, attitude to culture and to education. But at the same time, what they were what they would emphasize was that again this this weird feeling that we're resurrecting Pushkin, right? That he Pushkin is not the Pushkin that he was then when he's now being studied by Soviet children. And that Soviet children are represented these militant devotees of both socialist culture and the great Russian culture uh, or whatever uh, culture from whatever people uh, that is being incorporated into the present part of our, our canon. So, so you have all it. So it's all based around this performance and stuff that you would that would survive throughout the, the Soviet education and to this day is still there to a certain extent. You know, a lot of reciting the poems with the uh, great emotion, doing drawings and, and treating these drawings like they have some kind of magical power. Like, uh, you know, you'll have weird press reports. of. Uh, there's one that I talk about in the book where there's like a, it's like a model of Pushkin's duel. And, and in the in the press, they're like, oh, it's so realistic. I, I just want to reach down and save Pushkin <laughs> from his duel and things like that. You know, putting on plays, doing all this stuff. And, and you know, it's... And, and it's, it's, it's a representation. The children are, are meant to be like, I mean, it's, it must have been pretty damn hard to be a child yeah. <laughs> in that, in, during the Jubilee, trying to live up to this. And, and there's actually, a, uh, Yuri Trifonov has a, has a book translated as Disappearance, 
where he sort of is sort of remembering his own childhood during the Jubilee and how horrible it was because his Pushkin album that he made was was just terrible <laughs> and, and didn't produce this amazing sense of having resurrected the the, the past properly. But. Yeah, the one thing that you you have these pictures of children with representations yeah. <laughs> of Pushkin and in some cases representing Pushkin and and it seems like the the educative methods to some extent were. Almost like having the children embody Pushkin or become Pushkin. Like there's one picture you have in the book of these kids in different acrobatic poses to spell Pushkin, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. And they're from like – they're from the Far East. They're some non-Russian tribe. But yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's it's not necessarily that they're becoming Pushkin, but they are – they're embodying his – his essence, his return, right? And so you, you get this resurrective quality to it. I mean, that's, that's a general theme running through the whole book, that kind of the ideal, what, what this hybrid structure between monumentalism and eschatology sort of produces is the classical scene of Pushkin is a living monument who meets the Soviet, the new Soviet man, the new Soviet militant, you know, young person who has none of the scars of the past on him and is, is you know, marching freely into the future. And there is no sense of difference between them, <laughs> right? That, that somehow they, they're like mirror images of one another because we are hardened by the revolution, transformed, we are transformed mankind, uh, you know, uh, moving towards communism. But, and Pushkin with his sort of great achievement resurrected by our devotion becomes uh, that kind of thing as well. Um, so normally, if you think of a living statue, right, it's usually a scary thing, right? It's going to smash you or drag you down to hell like in Don Giovanni or something. But in the in the Soviet context, it's like it's it's totally normal. Like you, I'm a living statue, too. Why wouldn't I shake hands with this um, this living statue of Pushkin? Um, so that's the kind of thing. So you have a lot of these images of children with with statues of Pushkin or drawings that they're doing of Pushkin and they're or, you know, or even that that thing where it's like taking Pushkin's name and they're doing this gymnastics thing. It's also a kind of living, you know, taking the symbol and filling it with life, with living bodies, right? So, and that's just kind of, it's everywhere, that play with with life and form fusing together in some kind of hybrid way. Now, one reoccurring motif you point out in terms of how Pushkin is represented was his racial ambiguity. How was Pushkin's blackness dealt with in the context of the Jubilee? Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, of course, because, you know, the Russian national poet is not ethnically, you know, homogenous, right? He's not uh, an Aryan figure, even though Dostoevsky talks about him unifying the Aryan peoples of Europe. But the way I talk about it mostly is in the context of historical fictions uh, produced for the Jubilee, right? So the, which which I kind of talk about in the, in, in the general context of the problem of producing socialist realist historical fiction about pre-revolutionary subjects. So if you're going to do a a nice socialist realist historical novel or historical film, better do it about the Civil War. (laughs) Because if you do it about the Civil War, that means you have the party there, you have a people that are becoming, emerging from sort of the spontaneous, uh, spontaneous you have martyrs, you have, you know, the mentor that dies and releases the people into the future to, to redeem them and so on. All that stuff is good and stable and ready for action. But when you take something like Pushkin's story, it becomes extremely problematic because there's no party. If you want to give him some kind of mentor that helps him mature into a sort of conscious political subject, 
Uh, it has to be like his Decemberist friends, but they're basically liberals and they're all aristocrats, and so it's kind of problematic. If you want to make Pushkin, on the other hand, the mentor, which of course fits his sort of status as this word giver and and so on, then the problem is there are no people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's no in Pushkin's time. You know, they're just peasants. Uh, you know, there's no one to really um, to learn from him. So what you end up with, and this is where his racial ambiguity is used. On both sides of that. So, for example, he's, he's extremely often he's treated as this wild, bestial, passionate, African, untamed guy running around. The clearest it comes through is in the two films they made in, in Leningrad for the Jubilee. So in, in the first one, Youth of a Poet, it's, it treats his time in, in the Lyceum in, in Tsarskoye Silo, and he's like the black kid, right? <laughs> the only black kid in school. <laughs> and he's constantly getting upset and running around. They have all these weird scenes where he's like tearing through the bushes like, a, like some kind of panther and getting startled. He emerges into a clearing and he gets startled by something he sees and so on. But at the same time, that's, that's a positive characteristic because it separates him from all these sort of, all this kind of imperial pomp of the, of the school and the, the, the toad kids who were always ratting out the Decemberists and, and Pushkin for their bad behavior and, and political sort of stirrings and so on. That he, he embodies the spontaneity, raw spontaneity of desire for liberty, but the problem is the film can't do anything with it, right? He can't realize this trajectory to consciousness because there's no one there to help him. And, so, and then the alternative is in the other film they made, Journey to Arzurum or Arzurum, which tells the story, you know, a very liberally, sort of historically <laughs> altered version of, of the trip Pushkin took to, to the Caucasus, in any case, during a, a military campaign in, in the war with Turkey. And here the Decembrists are also the main focus. The Decembrists who have been reduced in the ranks and are fighting as common soldiers there, part of their punishment, right? And Pushkin shows up. In this case, and he looks completely different from how he looks in the other film, where he has a very natural, the kid has very natural makeup and, 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 and so on. In this one, he's like, he really looks like a drag queen. He's got this crazy <laughs> wig on, he's got all sorts of weird, got rouge on and lipstick, it seems, along with the black face. And he looks completely different from everyone else, of course. And he wears this weird, but there's also this weird animal quality because he wears this, um, this shaggy goat fur cape all the time. So he's kind of, which is, has the same kind of texture as his curly hair. But in this version, he is like, he kind of takes the form of the would-be mentor who would, if he could, could have been in that position, would have led people to some kind of place of consciousness. But he can't because he's in the wrong time again, right? He's waiting. So, so again, it's a kind of tragic story. He's, you know, basically what he does in the movies, he's trying to like get the Decembrists to remember their brotherhood and to like, the way I talk about it is to be faithful to the faithful to the site of their castration <laughs> as failed revolutionary. And so, and, but that's all he can do. Right. And so like they get killed. There's the bad guys, the secret police and the, the army guys uh, arrange it so that some of these Decembrists get killed on the battlefield. And there's this really poignant scene where Pushkin buries his friend, but he, well, he doesn't bury him. He just covers him in his goat fur cape. So you have this kind of weird sense that they're stuck uh, that Pushkin and the Decembrists are stuck in this waiting, this place of anticipation. And the, the animal stuff and the racial ambiguity and, and a certain, to a certain extent a certain queerness contributes to this feeling of, uh, you know, that consummation of their journey is still to come. That, that they're, they're sort of suspended in this in-between condition. So that's generally, I mean, I, I mean of course there are, the, the Jubilee was celebrated widely in, in Harlem actually at the time. And there, you know, there are, in general during those years, there's this, 
sense of we are we are the place that is not racist. So, but in in terms of at that deeper level of how they deal, of course, it, a lot of it is very racist. All this stuff of Pushkin as the jungle cat is pretty goddamn racist. But it's that friendly Russian racism you get, where it's like. Oh, I love watching, you know, uh, uh, footballers from Africa. They're so graceful, like gazelles. <laughs> you get that on, on football commentary all the time. But, but yeah, so it was that kind of thing. So they use it in this way to reflect the impossibility, in a sympathetic way, uh, the impossibility of sort of realizing that socialist realist uh, tra trajectory from spontaneity to consciousness. So I know that the terror is not a focus of your study. And, and you say this explicitly, it, it just would take too much. But nevertheless, because the centennial is in 1937, I feel we just, we need to say something about it. It's not, it's not that it would take too much time. It's that that is the sort of standard treatment of the Jubilee, especially in Russian popular memory of it. So like, if you see anything about the Jubilee on TV, it's always like, like there was this program a few years ago called Nafonya Pushkina, so it's like with Pushkin in the background or something, right? Uh, it's quoting an Akujava song, but in any case, and then it, it just details all of the, uh, all sorts of uh, stories of intellectuals who got persecuted in, in 37. That you know, that's the basic idea that that the the Jubilee was just this blanket of optimism and happiness, and like we love culture that covered over the the massive tax on on a lot of high cultural figures during the terror. So, so then what place does the terror then have in your narrative? Well, see, the, the problem with that is that the Jubilee discourse is not, it's, the Jubilee basically ends in, in February of 1937. That's the anniversary date. It, there's some stuff that goes on the school year and the school year continues working on it till, till the summer and so on. But the, the terror rhetoric starts around that. The big, the really, you know, virulent terror rhetoric and the actual murders start uh, after that. So, but whereas the Pushkin Jubilee stuff starts way back before in you know, 18, uh, 1933, 1934, uh, they start thinking about it really in the middle of this period that is like the um, life has become more joyous, comrades, you know, happy, this happiness period when actually the state is relaxing. You have the constitution, all this stuff. On, on the other hand, it, its main effect, the main effect I would say is not necessarily the, the terror so much as the Committee for Artistic Affairs that starts working in 1936, right? Which is uh, definitely part of the clamping down and the, um, the anxiety, paranoia, and so on that's, that's, that feeds into the terror. But really, it's, it's more about the way I would put it is this, this kind of the sense that the left-right deviation is becoming dangerous again. And in art, that means that it starts becoming easier to say something is bad than to say something is good. So in 1936, they start criticizing everyone. Everyone is failing in some way. And so tons of the of things that were produced for the Jubilee or were intended for the Jubilee also fail because they get slammed in the press in one way or another, or the, the author gets slammed for something else, and that means his other works can't come out. Or, or people are just, you know, intellectuals, cultural figures were just under tremendous stress in, in 1936. And that contributes a lot to the fact that a lot of stuff that could have been produced for the Jubilee isn't produced. At the same time, the early part of the purges, Kaminev and Zinoviev, who get arrested, they don't get killed till later, but they get arrested pretty quickly after the, the Kirov murder. That has a huge effect on the Jubilee because they were the original organizers to a large extent. Kamenev is the, is the guy who takes charge of the Jubilee committee in, in 1934. Uh, Zinoviev is writing this big article about Pushkin for this issue of this literary heritage series that ha was producing this massive volume on, on Pushkin. And so all that stuff gets delayed. 
by like a whole year, and which also contributes to the fact that the Jubilee is just is messed up all over the place and lots of things that were supposed to happen don't happen. You can talk about the collected works. They were supposed to get the collected works out in time to for 1937. They fail because of all this meddling going on from, from the state. And then Yuli Oxman gets uh, sent to the Gulag for 10 years as a result. So, I mean, a lot of it is that kind of stuff. So I want to focus on what happens in the Jubilee, not what's happening around it. Okay, so I so so that's part of it. But at the same time, I think you can use the my analysis of the Jubilee to think about the terror as well. You know that uh, that this this double think that I'm talking about, even if it's presented as something joyous and so on in in this in this rhetoric, it's actually an impossible task. You cannot combine these things without embracing this double think. And when things turn critical, when people start getting nervous starting in around 1936, which is of course part of this constitution stuff, because the constitution, I mean, it's, it's all a double-edged sword. The constitution is about forgiveness, right? Common and Zinoviev coming back is about forgiveness, right? We, we let you do stuff in culture, come back into the party, even though you were, you know, you lost the struggle with Stalin. All this stuff is about forgiveness and, and inclusivity. And, you know, we can let people vote that didn't use, that couldn't vote before. But at the same time, we're like, holy shit, we're letting, <laughs> we're letting people vote. Could be our enemies, you know, or like we're promoting national culture in, in the republics. And what if those people decide they want to be independent? We better kill all those goddamn intellectuals down there, right? So it's, it's all part of a similar thing, but it's just, it turns, it's when it starts to turn critical and it starts, you could say in a certain sense, it turns more the sort of eschatological fire uh, picks up again, right? They try, they're trying to, they're getting, maybe they're getting nervous about this retreat feeling themselves. Uh, and they want to make sure that, uh, or the culture itself starts getting nervous and wants to make sure that people don't sneak in <laughs> who shouldn't be there. So, so that, in that sense, can see the seeds of the terror in this kind of, in the logic of the Jubilee. But they're not simultaneous, I think, it is important to understand that the terror discourse, it starts really in, in like a week or two after <laughs> the, the push. I mean, you have the second show trial. Which has a lot of that record, but really in the party when they start to go completely insane, that's during this February March plenum, which I think starts literally like seven days after the the Jubilee. And so, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric about fascist people and enemies in the Jubilee. You will see in the newspapers Jubilee articles next to articles about Trotskyites and so on. But the preparations, the fact that the preparations start so much earlier, means that that the discourse hasn't had time to catch up completely. It's, it's still doing a lot of other work before you get to that dastardly work of purging a uh, society of, of presumed enemies. And finally, I was struck by actually the first sentence of your conclusion, which is Soviet culture in the 1930s remained as radical as the early revolutionary period. Now, most people would, including myself, look at this and say, huh? Because Because the narrative that we have is that you know, the 1920s and the early early years after the revolution in the 1920s was all this experimental, the avant-garde, et cetera, et cetera. You say it remained as radical because it was still pursuing an impossible solution to the impossible task of modernity. My question is then, what does the centennial celebration say about Stalinist culture in particular and its legacy in Soviet culture more broadly? I mean, first of all, in terms of the legacy, just to take that part first, the, it I, basically the way I look at Soviet culture is that the war is the end of the revolution. The war is where the militancy of the Russian Revolution is completely exhausted. Stalinism, the Stalin, the 30s produce the sort of you could say I don't know social, cultural, political infrastructure 
of the Soviet Union that survives to the end and in many ways is still around. And so like things like Soviet schools, like how you teach, how you, how you study in a Soviet school, that lasts. But the intensity disappears. And that's why, you know, so in the end, I talk a lot about Dmitry Prigov and his poems, his Pushkin poems, and how it's this, it's this weird, it's actually a weird alien thing, this, these strange Soviet Pushkin images, because nobody thinks about them anymore by the time he's dealing with them, right? They're just these dead signifiers. Whereas in the 30s, they are, they're intensely alive. And that's part of what it's about. And so when I, when I talk about radical, I don't, I don't mean progressive, right? I don't mean that they're like, advancing the cause of communism necessarily. I mean that they are militant. You know, the culture is still deeply concerned with realizing this project that it has embarked upon uh, and is willing to do crazy things. I mean, the terror, I think, is obviously the most, the biggest evidence you can get for the fact that the Soviet, the Stalinist period is, is still radical, right? Because they are, they are doing this, this social uh, engineering project uh, and, and at the same time as sort of committing suicide in the elite, that reflects an intense militancy. And, you know, you have to understand that the, when the avant-garde, people start to get fatigued with the avant-garde in the, in the early 30s, uh, the avant-garde is not really radical anymore at that point. It's, it's already kind of lost its own energy, and people start looking for bigger, grander sort of narratives. They want a more epic scope to their thing, which is, in a sense, even though in some ways you can, you can say, oh, well, they're, they're giving up on the um, important gains of the avant-garde, in some ways they're trying to get to something that is also radical that the avant-garde misses, right, to some, get to some kind of grander scope. And this, this project of, of building socialism in one country is really participating in that, and the Pushkin Jubilee is a central part of that uh, in terms of defining the place of Russian culture. So, so I mean, that, I mean that this this narrative of the great retreat that that the, you have in a modernist eschatological avant-garde sort of culture based on iconoclasm and rupture and all this stuff novelty and uh, innovation and so on that then gets smashed and replaced with something totally bourgeois that that is not true that there is tons of purgative fire in the 30s as well there's tons of emphasis on rupture and and breaking the the temporal barriers between you and 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 the object of your political desire right um so so but yeah but basically it's that they're not they don't stop being militants uh even if even if they're you know the workers are on roller skates in gorky park that's still a militant activity <laughs> and reading pushkin right um, at that point at least it's it's understood in that way and you get i mean if you read like uh, diaries from the time i mean it's so clear that the people are people are having nervous breakdowns all over the place in the 30s because it's too intense in some ways it's more intense you know because people are are paying more attention than they were in the 20s. So it's not just elite culture, it's everybody. That was John Platt, assistant professor in the Slavic Languages and Literature Department at the University of Pittsburgh, where he specializes in Pushkin, literary theory, Soviet culture, and Russian contemporary art and poetry. He recently published Greetings Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics and the Russian National Bard. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. I want to thank everyone for their continued support. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!
Oh, 